Today's podcast is about a pretty ugly subject, one that almost everyone knows about or has heard about and nobody wants to talk about it, human trafficking, and specifically this time familial sex and labor trafficking. I'm talking with Margaret Henderson, teaching associate professor here at the UNC School of Government. Margaret does considerable work in training local government professionals to recognize the signs of human trafficking. She's also the author of a recent public management bulletin on the topic of human trafficking by families. Margaret, thank you for being here with me today. Can we just briefly talk a moment about the broader subject of human trafficking and then we'll get a little bit more focused on familial trafficking, but just a level set on human trafficking in general and what that looks like here in North Carolina. That's a good idea, Patrice. Um, human trafficking is a complex issue and it's so broad that it's hard to get a handle on. Um, it, it looks very different to different people. So let's just start with three things. Um, the definition of it, the diversity of it, and then how it hides in plain sight. We need to talk about the definition because people are flinging this term around easily and inaccurately anymore. We see it in headlines that actually have nothing to do with human trafficking, for example. We see it in the plots of TV shows and movies and may or may not be accurately represented. But here's what the legal definition is. Human trafficking happens when one person uses force, fraud, or coercion to manipulate another person into performing either sex or labor acts for profit. There's always a third party making money off the deal. That's what makes it trafficking. Somebody is making money. It's a business model. If we can interrupt the business model, then maybe we can interrupt the pattern. And we need to understand that these business models take very different forms depending on where you are. So how it looks in Wilmington might be entirely different from how it shows up in Asheville, even though those two cities have a lot in common in terms of their tourism, for example, and public events and that sort of thing. What's an example, Margaret? Of, of well, how Asheville might look different than Wilmington. What would be a model that would look different between the two cities? If there's anything about the two cities that is unique to that area. I mean, just the fact that the mountains are there and that some kinds of work are, is more seasonal there than it is, or seasonal differently than it is in Wilmington, mm -hmm. that can show up in the business models of human trafficking. Whether or not you've got a homeless population that stays in your area all year round, for example, that okay. that's a vulnerability that can be exploited. So the important thing to realize is you should be asking not does it happen here, but how does it happen here? Because traffickers exploit whatever is in the area. They need vulnerabilities, and there are always vulnerabilities in our communities, no matter who or where we are, but they'll adjust their business models to reflect the opportunities presented by the environmental conditions that are present. So remember that question, not okay. does it happen here, but how does it happen here? And a really frustrating thing about trafficking and coming to grips with it is that the victims, the traffickers, and the customers can look like any of us, really and truly, any of us. <laughs> so it could be the, the person who's sitting next to you in the pew on Sunday morning. You know, it, it could be 
a neighbor. Um, so what are some of those victim characteristics, Margaret, that you might look for? For traffickers to operate, they need to have a vulnerability in someone else that they can exploit. So say, for example, that could be um, my family is financially stressed, we don't have enough to pay rent. Mom decides that a teenage daughter is going to be of service to the family by providing sex to someone, and the benefit of exchange is the rent payment gets ignored. Okay. That's one example. Um, if I'm a gay, lesbian, bi, trans youth or young adult and my family and community of origin doesn't accept me, I might be very isolated and lonely and afraid and end up going to wherever I feel like I can find that support. Um, I might go to a big city. You know, I might go to someone friendly down the road who's willing to talk to me. But that's a vulnerability that can be exploited. Okay. It really doesn't matter if the vulnerabilities are brand new, like my home and my job just blew away in a hurricane yesterday, or they're generational. I, I come from a family that's always been high risk, on the edge of poverty, multiple forms of dysfunction within the family. Um, anything can be exploited by a trafficker. They are masters at that. Are there particular strategies for manipulation and control that are at play in family situations, Margaret? What, what does it look like when you apply this to a family unit itself? Um, okay. Any particular strategies that are used for that kind of manipulation? Well, what families, traffickers as family members have going for them is that the family members either trust or fear them or love them, and they want to mm. stay in relationship with them. So for a child who's trafficked by a parent probably is not going to want to speak about it to betray the parent. Um, some traffickers are subtly coercive, and others are violent. So, it, it, you know, I can't speak one way about this because it happens in so many different forms, but, you know, one trafficker may tell a kid, I need you to do this for the family. It's for the good of the family. And we're out on the street if you don't do it for me. And another trafficker might say, if you don't do it, I'm killing the dog. Or I'm, your little sister's going to do it. So I need you to do that so you're protecting your little sister. So the strategies of manipulation are going to be adjusted according to the circumstances of the family. But there's some new research out, and this is part of what um, got me started thinking about familial trafficking and writing this new bulletin. The, this research is only about five or seven years old. It's really picked up speed in the last couple of years. And what they're saying about familial trafficking now, and this is why I feel like it's so important for this particular audience, is victims are more likely to have a higher number of perpetrators, live in rural communities, as is much of North Carolina, and be younger. So families pick their family members who are younger, sell them more often, and rely on the isolation of their living circumstances to enable the trafficking to continue. When there's an intervention, when there's a report, it's more likely to come from a, an anonymous community member than from a professional in the community. So not from the teacher or the school counselor or law enforcement, but for just somebody who's calling in and say, I know this is happening 
and here's where it's happening. You know, people know, and they also rely on word of mouth instead of online advertising too. So the word is out in the community where there are these vulnerable families that are abusing the trust that their family members place in them. And then another sad factoid is that um, when there's perpetration by a family member, the case is not likely to be substantiated. It's not likely to be prosecuted. And I saw that in your bulletin. Tell me why, Margaret. I, I think the primary reason, well, there's two, two big ones. Uh, there's not likely to be um, evidence that's independent of the person being trafficked. And we know that kids don't want to testify against their parents, even if they're being directly abused by their parents. So it, it's hard to build these cases. Law enforcement will tell you, prosecutors will tell you, these are time-consuming cases to build, even in the best of circumstances. And in, in the case of familial trafficking, a lot of this, the situation is very well hidden, very well masked. And so it's tough to prove these cases. So I'm remembering from your bulletin, your discussion about, um, I think it's the Johnston County District Attorney and how that person has managed to um, develop ways of questioning victims that uncovers the familial trafficking in ways that are easier to uh, for the victim to um, answer the questions, I guess, is what it sounded like. Right. That was investigator <clears throat> Rick Hoffman who works in that office, and he, he does training across the state about human trafficking. And he will say what others in the field say. You never ask directly about it. So I, I said, Patrice, is your father trafficking you? Hmm. Uh, you're going to deny it. I mean, that word's not going to mean anything to you. It's too big and ugly. You won't accept it. So what folks in the field have learned to do is they ask around it. So, for example, if they're working with a homeless kid, uh, they might ask, um, so tell me, where'd you sleep last night? Um, when's the last time you had a good meal? You know, you, you, you ask around their circumstances. And have you ever taken a job that turned out to not be what you expected it to be? Or um, how safe do you feel at home? Those kinds of questions. So it's like peeling layers of an onion. Yeah, and yeah. you just don't lead with those big, heavy words of human trafficking. You, you talk, start talking about the smaller behaviors, and that's what reveals the big picture. And I think um, folks in the field will tell you that when talking with children or others abused by people they love and theoretically trust, you have to be even more delicate in the inquiry. Yeah. Makes it very hard to answer those questions. I participated in a workshop a couple of years ago in which I and other folks in the field were talking about how trafficking shows up in North Carolina, and, and we got to the end of it, and I asked folks to reconsider it. Now that you know what these indicators are, is there anything you're revisiting, rethinking, renaming, now that you've got this information? And there were two child protective workers in the audience who said uh, they had investigated a, a young mother for abuse and neglect, and she kind of fit a stereotype in that she lived in rural North Carolina, and financially stressed, had two children, and they had found a video on the woman's phone of her two pre-adolescent kids engaged in sexual activity. 
So at the time, they thought about it in terms of neglect. They did not think about it in terms of she might have, probably did, sell that video. To market for the video. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn how to um, name the behaviors and the products in a way that's a little bit different than using this big term of human trafficking. Human trafficking. I want to make it clear that I'm not suggesting that familial trafficking only happens in rural communities. That's simply not true. It ha can happen anywhere, and it does happen anywhere. But the point I'm making is it does happen anywhere. So you may think you're safe in a rural community because you don't have the big tourism, you don't have, <clears throat> maybe you don't have farms, maybe you don't have big uh, public events where people come here from other places and act out while they're here. But you've got vulnerable families, and the trafficking can just be taking that form. You've talked about uh, the training that you do, Margaret, uh, with the public professional side. What are some of the uh, professions at the local government level where, where you might not expect that trafficking could be identified, but, but they've been really crucial in some communities? So you mentioned earlier the Child Protective Services mm -hmm. workers. I think that's a fairly well-known profession at the local level, and your knee-jerk reaction might be to say, well, it's their job to find this, mm -hmm. but there's so many other local government professionals that are in and out of people's houses and businesses. Can you talk a little bit about some of the kinds of training you've done with what professions? Sure. Let me back up and say, in the United States, we have the National Human Trafficking Hotline that receives thousands of calls every year. And a couple of years ago, they um, created a report that categorized these types of calls, and they came up with 25 different business models of human trafficking, which is not to say that's an exclusive list, an exhaustive list, it, but at least it identified 25 different business models, and they're not all something that we would think of normally. And we did some research using local government focus groups, and we found out that local government staff are in positions to see indicators in 19 of those 25 different business models. Wow. 19 of the 25. And we found out things like inspectors. They see a lot. They go everywhere. And it, it doesn't matter to me if they're inspecting for water quality or building codes or how clean the restaurant is. They're going in businesses and work, work sites, and they're in positions to see trafficking that may be happening there. I'm convinced that environmental health inspectors are better positioned to see labor trafficking that happens in the back of restaurants than, than anybody else is. Uh, fire marshals go all over the place. Who's more friendly and affable than a fire marshal, firm, right? right. Um, there have been several cases of fire marshals identifying the indicators of trafficking within a massage parlor. They were illicit massage parlors, and they actually saw the 50-pound bags of rice, the indicators of that people were living there in the parlor. People were sleeping on the beds because they couldn't leave the building, wow. that kind of thing. So if our local government staff are working with populations we know to be vulnerable, like foster kids, homeless, people who haven't succeeded in school and they're having a hard time making their way economically. Or if we have people who are going in homes, businesses, or construction sites, or are somehow connected with public transportation and public waiting areas, they're all in positions to see the indicators of trafficking and probably have without realizing what they saw. 
What are some proactive and reactive strategies to uncover these kinds of crimes in communities, Margaret? Well, the most important thing for us all to do is just simply to become more informed about how trafficking actually happens, not how Hollywood tells us, but how it actually happens. And I encourage in, in the training that I do for local go government audiences to have a conversation in your work group. What are your expectations if somebody sees something suspicious? And it may be blatantly <laughs> suspicious, or it may just be, I don't feel good about this. So what are your expectations as a work group? Um, in one session, a manager who was in the group said, I expect my people to call it in. And if it's going to hit the newspapers, please give me a call ahead of time so that I'll be prepared. But I expect folks to do what they need to do. And that's in contrast to another woman in another state who a couple of decades ago came in to tell her supervisor about something she had seen that was highly suspicious and upsetting, and he said, we're not getting in anybody's business. We don't want folks to think our office told on them, which was actually, would be illegal in North Carolina because in that circ circumstance there were children involved and, and they appeared to be at risk. So step one is just becoming aware. Step two is having some conversations about protocols in the office. I guarantee you, you do not want to be figuring this out when there's when there's evidence. <laughs> when right. it's happening right in front of your face or the scary guys in the waiting room waiting for the, the patient to come out of the public health clinic. Um, you want to have a plan in place. And then, as you would with any other protocol, if you use it, debrief it and assess what worked well and what needed to change. It, it's the basics that apply to other kinds of situations. In North Carolina, like in every other state in the union, our law enforcement and child protective workers and other key folks like that are inconsistent in the training that they receive about human trafficking. So you might go to one jurisdiction and you've got investigators who are fantastic at what they do. You go to another jurisdiction and investigators barely know what human trafficking is and wouldn't know how to deal with it uh, professionally. So we need to become more consistent in our background knowledge and then let's become more consistent in the resources we have from community to community to community so that we could help the victims more successfully. One thing I want local government officials to know is that your nonprofit partners may be some of your best assets in figuring out community response. So check in with your rape crisis centers, um, your domestic violence shelters, child advocacy centers, and your homeless shelters. You may get some useful information from them about what they've seen so far and then what they could do should a situation come to light in your community. You've touched on what uh, some of the local government professions and especially department heads, you know, people that, uh, that local inspectors and all report to, to send the message that it's okay. I expect, not only do I expect you to tell us when you see something that looks questionable, but but it's okay to tell somebody that you've seen something. Um, well, and if children or a vulnerable adult is involved, you're mandated. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. There's no choice there, yeah. So uh, what could a local elected official do in this respect, Margaret? I'm thinking about, you know, they're not, in most cases, they're not the professionals that are out there doing these kinds of jobs, but from where... I see their role, they're community leaders, they're people that have 
positions of influence and respect. So what what can they do to help further the cause for uncovering these kinds of victimizations, Margaret? What could an elected official do? Elected officials are in positions to convene people together in problem-solving mm -hmm. efforts. So um, that's certainly one option for them to collect people in one place at one time and find out what your resources are, what folks have seen in your community, where the gaps are. That's a good point because usually if a county commissioner says, let's have a meeting, people will come. Yes, yeah. they will. Yeah. yeah, and it's not that I expect anybody anywhere to have the answer, but I think we can all show up for the meeting and begin to discuss what's happening and how we've got, what resources we have to respond to it. Thank you, Margaret. I appreciate this conversation today. I hope we get an opportunity to have a further conversation and maybe a first-person perspective of what human trafficking is like, recounting of uh, what it's like to be a victim of trafficking in this way. Do you have any words that you would like to say? I want folks to know that um, I am more than glad to help anyone find what they, resources they need to learn more about human trafficking. So you can reach out to me by email, margaret at sog.unc.edu, or go to the School of Government website at sog.unc.edu and just do a search for human trafficking and you'll get all these resources we developed as well as my contact information. Thank you so much, Margaret. Please, everybody who's listening, if you have ideas for future podcasts, share them with me. I would love to have your ideas and like and subscribe to our podcast. You can reach me at P-R-O-E-S-L-E-R -E at S-O-G dot U-N-C dot E-D-U. I uh, want to especially thank Paul Bonner, our studio wizard, for helping us uh, with the recording today. Thank you. Thank you.